Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Our first presenter this afternoon will be Dr. Armin Schwarzbach of Armin Labs in Germany. Uh, Armin Labs is a uh, laboratory that can do testing for patients uh, anywhere, virtually anywhere in the world. And uh, with that, Dr. Schwarzbach. Thank you, Mark, for this very friendly introduction here into hot Glasgow, very hot Glasgow, the people told me it's hotter than, uh, for example, in Athens or so, so you don't need to go on holiday there, stay here in Scotland. And thank you, Linda Elsgood, also for organizing this first European conference. I participate now, I think, the fifth time or fourth time, I don't remember exactly. And LDN was very strange. I, I never heard about LDN <laughs> before, but now I know more. And um, in Lyme disease, uh, it's more and more used, what I know, from different therapists. It's upcoming, the LDN time with the Lyme time. My topic today will be to talk about modern diagnostic tests for chronic Lyme and co-infections, because the co-infections came more and more to the focus worldwide, internationally. We all believe um, that we do antibody testings, and antibodies are good, but the antibodies are not the best for Lyme disease, because for Lyme disease, it's really complicated to find the best antigens for um, the pathogen Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia burgdorferi is a, is a spirochete. It can move everywhere into, in your body, and it can do a lot of pain, a lot of other issues, um, you could get hair loss, for example, you get, could get autoimmune disorders. It makes a lot of these problems. And this slide wants to show you that the sensitivity means the false negative percentage is a very high one. We have a lot of studies behind that. But the normal health insurances just pay the ELISA technique. But the ELISA technique is not sufficient enough to detect chronic Lyme patients. So you miss up to 60% of chronic Lyme patients. We have some studies also about Western blots. Western blot is a confirmation test in chronic Lyme. If you have a positive ELISA, then you confirm the antibodies by Western blot. But Western blot has just 17% sensitivity. So we miss uh, up to 80% of our patients. And they are misdiagnosed. And they suffer for years, decades of years. is a tragedy. So this is a big issue for all of us in the medical field to, co to care for Lyme patients. This is to show you what I've talked about. Do you trust in the HIV ELISA? If you want to check yourself for HIV, you do ELISA. The ELISA is really a good one. But for Lyme disease, it's horrible. It fails. It's 500 times more false negative, we name it. 500, uh, you would never trust an HIV ELISA in this context. So forget about the ELISA. Don't do it by your general practitioner. That's not the key in diagnosing chronic Lyme disease. 
What we are doing now more and more um, is an antibody testing by a modern Western blot. It's named a microarray. I don't know if you've heard about this technique. It's coming up more and more in laboratories in the world, uh, especially in Europe. And very important is also to check your patients for sensu stricto, garinii, and afzeliae. The sensu stricto is especially for joint arthritis. The garinii makes chronic fatigue, or you name it in Scotland, ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, whatever it is. And the afzeliae makes uh, the skin problems. So we have the three main subspecies. But we have a lot of other different subspecies in Lyme or in Lyme-like illness. We have now the Mayamotoi. I don't know if you have heard about this. Mayamotoi makes a recurrent fever and joint muscle pain. And the ticks, the ticks are full of this Mayamotoi. Yesterday we had in London an inter interesting presentation by a veterinarian. Uh, more and more Mayamotoi cases, four they have documented in England, never documented before. Mayamoto is a Japanese name, so um, you think it's in Japan. No, we have it in Europe already. Imported infections. You bring your dog to Japan, you bring the dog back, and then you have Mayamotoi in your own garden maybe, and then you got infected by a tick bite. Nobody knows about that. That's really an issue for the future. Um, the next challenge for us is that these pathogens, like Borrelia, they try to protect. They are doing round bodies. Round bodies, you heard about that? What is a round body? We name it better a pleomorphic form. Here, that's a round body. It has a double membrane. We did a lot of studies on that with a Finnish group. And the double membrane, this is not the spirochete. This is a spirochete. This is Borrelia burgdorferi. You know about it. A spirochete, like a snake moving your body. But the round body, this is also a spirochete. That's Borrelia burgdorferi. It's protection, protection mechanism, protection, intracellular protection. The macrophages cannot destroy it. We have the SNPs. We have different models about that now. So. What does it mean? Protection. It's, it's intelligent. The pathogen Borrelia is a very intelligent one. We have also next problem. You see it here, the green color. These are the biofilms. So our therapies aim internationally more and more the biofilms. What is a biofilm? Biofilm is a slime. If you have, for example, um, some sinusitis, you spit out biofilms. Polymucosaccharides, it's named, okay? You spit it out. What does it mean for therapies? That's protection. What is a biofilm? Communication. Quorum sensing, it's named. Chatting rooms. They chat to each other. These are very intelligent uh, pathogens. So they have two very important protection mechanisms. One is the biofilm for the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi and the round body. And so our therapies have to aim that. You cannot destroy a pathogen with these conditions. You have to reach it, and then you have to, you have to hit it. This international work, a uh, lot of groups are doing now in America. So why don't we check these patients for round body antibodies? Why not? We never did this, but now we do it. We have now the new TICPLEX basic. I don't want to promote this. This is a certified test by Professor Gilbert developed uh, during a European scientific project uh, last five years ago. So these round body antibodies brings us a very high sensitivity, up to 18, 90%. We can find now Borrelia round body antibodies. But the doctors don't know about that. If you, in the guidelines, we all believe in the guidelines. But if you believe in a guideline, you get lost in this. Uh, you, need, you need a never-lost system, navigation system. The guidelines should guide you, nothing else. But please be intelligent and use your own guidelines and your own brain about this.
Um, where I'm focused more and more the last years is the T-cellular immune reactions. Um, you heard it maybe in, in America, but some of my presentations about that. The T-cells. Um, antibodies are B-cellular immune reactions, but we are checking now for the T-cellular immune re uh, reactions. It became prominent by uh, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is not reacting on the antibodies, but on the T-cells. So we check more and more by the Th1 system. Th1 system, also the balance, Th1, Th2 system is very important. This is a T-cellular immune reaction. We forgot it in laboratory medicine in the last years. The next challenge are for us the natural killer cells. Maybe you have heard it from HIV infection. Natural killer cells play a very important role if you have a chronic infection with HIV. And uh, natural killer cells are the last step when your immune system is breaking down. So we monitor and we diagnose more and more patients with CD57 cells. Not CD56, they have also the marker CD56, but they have also the marker on the surface. They belong to the T lymphocytes, this subpopulation, CD57. And they are low if you have a patient with chronic pain. You can do it, I guarantee, if it's low. I swear, I say to you, your patient is longer than one year sick. That's my first message. And the second message, your patient has pain. And all of the doctors, I don't know the patients, but say, yes, you're correct. Why do you, how do you know? Because it's a cytokine storm market. It's an inflammation market, like a CRP, but a chronic. After a year, it's going down. It doesn't tell you, is it now chronic Lyme disease, or chronic chlamydia, or chronic mycoplasma, or whatever. It's a chronic bacterial marker. If you're interested, I have a lot of data about this. And this is so important. And also in autistic children, we have a study from Professor Merle, Kenny Merle is very active with some other therapies, LDN, I don't know, but he, he does a lot with autistic children in Brussels. And he um, did a study with autistic children. All children, 80, 90% had low CD57 cells. Why? Maybe there's an infection behind. Maybe, maybe Borrelia, maybe mycoplasma, maybe chlamydia. These are all intracellular infections. So this is an example for the Borrelia spot. What we are doing, we're checking now more and more these patients um, with the lymphocyte function, antigen 1. This is highly associated with autoimmune disorders. If you have LFA1 positive, you can say, oh, this patient, I have to look for autoimmune disorders. This uh, rheumatoid specialist, uh, they know it, but um, not the normal GP. They don't know about this. LFA1 is lymphocyte function antigen 1. Very important antigen because Borrelia has a mimicry effect. It can mimic the immune system, and then you have um, the uh, autoimmune disorder. That's also a problem, and then maybe you have a rheumatoid arthritis. You have a, a CCP antibody, or some do a rheumatoid factor. We do antinuclear antibodies and vasculitis, ANCA. It's a very important marker to check. Also, Bartonella is doing vasculitis. So the whole system is inflamed. Chlamydia is doing. And we know a lot of these pathogens are doing autoimmune disorders. And then we come into the field, LDN, how to block it. You know, what, what should we do now with this patient? Therapist, I'm no therapist in this field. You're the experts. So the LTT, or better name it, Elispot. It's Inter from Gamma Release Essay. Um, <coughs> The sensitivity is always discussed. We have around 84%. So you will not find 100% of your patients with a test. That's impossible. But over 80% is good. Professor Jack Lambert confirmed this data exactly. 
He found out 17% had antibodies against Lyme disease, but 86% showed positive early spots in his chronic Lyme patients in University Dublin. It's Mater University. And this is a, a, uh, from a book, and uh, this book uh, from Lehman and others uh, tells us we should do, we should look at the antibodies and we should look at the T cells. Don't forget the T cell analytics. The T cells are two testings are two, uh, 20 up to 100 fold more sensitive than the antibody testings. That's, we know that. So please check both sides and check here also the CD57 cells. And now we have a good diagnostic tool. Everybody says we, we need better diagnostic tools for Lyme disease. We have the better diagnostic tools, but we should care for it. We should look for T cells and for B cells. So this is the data about that. Specificity is very high. The antigens are very high. This is a study from Professor Lambert. It shows you exactly what I've talked about. So forget about the antibodies in Lyme disease. You can do that for if you're satisfied with it. Do the T-cellular analysis for it. Please do it, like in tuberculosis. We come back, tuberculosis. So why should we not check for Lyme disease? The early spot is now more and more interestingly uh, available. For me, also very interesting field now to check for Miyamoto. We have patients. That, uh, I think it's around 2 to 4% Miyamoto is positive. It's very important for therapies to know if Miyamoto is doing joint muscle arthritis also, how to defeat this Miyamoto. It's not Borrelia burgdorferi, it's Borrelia Miyamoto. We find a lot of patients now with active Bartonella, Henselet infections. We find a lot of patients with Babesia, Mercroti. Babesia is like malaria infection. We find Mycoplasma. We have a lot of viruses, EBV, CMV. They all make arthritis. All of these viruses can make arthritis. For example, also you use your LDN in this patient, for sure, without knowing that they're suffering from an infection. So, so long the infection is active, you cannot cure the patient, correct? You have to destroy the pathogen, huh? and you can measure that. You can measure it by lytic antigen for EBV. Perfect test, transplantation medicine is working with, who knows about. So we are fighting now for the T-cellular testings, and uh, I will be presenting that. This is an overview. You can get it outside, uh, showing you all of these methods. We have in laboratory medicine. Um, the modern laboratory medicine is not bad, but we have to, or we should improve that. The next years, it's a, it's a workflow. We are not in Star Trek here. Maybe uh, Dr. Pill is coming in a few years and say we do something here on your arm, and we know LDN was not a good, uh, it was a period you did it, but now the LDN time is over. We have now the Wanda truck or whatever, but but uh, Bill Gates um, said also we have uh, maybe a superbug, and a superbug can destroy us if you hear the messages the last two days about newspapers. So something is threatening us, some mutation. We are threatened and by the planes traveling everywhere around. So next, um, co-infections. want to give a short talk, time is running away, about Babesia, Bartonella, Ehrlichia. A tick is a dirty needle. If you have a tick bite, it need not to be Borrelia. It need not to be Lyme disease. Lyme disease is overdiagnosed, but also misdiagnosed. The truth is always in the middle of medicine. We have Rickettsia infections in the ticks. We have Mycoplasma in the ticks. And we have a lot of opportunistic virus infections in the patients, what we can see. 
Um, sorry, one slide back. But Tonella testings, you can do antibodies for IgG, IgM. They are not so sufficient. But this Elispot is, again, it's more sensitive. You find some of these patients with Bartonella infections, let me say around 8 to 10 percent. The ticks are infected with uh, Borrelia, uh, Bartonella. Uh, it's Hensele, Quintana. We have a lot of other different subspecies. We cannot test for that. That's a little problematic. But Bartonella, Hensele, Elispot, uh, if you have a cat, um, avoid the cats. The cats can scratch you. This is a cat scratch disease. Um, or there are ticks on the cats, and, the, and this is problematic also for tick bites. Babesia, we have also the Elispot now to check. We have the IgG, IgM antibodies, which are not so sensitive. For chlamydia, it's a perfect test by the IgA. If you have suspicion uh, with, a, with a sore throat or with a, a chronic fatigue or ME or joint arthritis, chlamydia was found in rheumatoid arthritis in America in a big study, and they treated with antibiotics, and 50% of the patient got cured with rifampin, metronidazole, and some other antibiotics with rheumatoid arthritis patient because chlamydia pneumonia, the aerogen transmitted pathogen is in the joints. It is in the joints. It's a passive transport mechanism into the joints. So we do now the IgA, which is very important. IgA. Always do an IgA test. Immune globulin A, not the IgM. IgM is systemic at the beginning. of. We have the chronic infection. If you have an IgA test, please do the IgA, not the IgM. IgG is long persistent, it's not so interesting. We do the IgA and do the early spot for the T cellular, and then you will find your patients with active infections, I swear. This is what I daily see with hundreds of patients. Mycoplasma, the same. Mycoplasma, please do IgA testing. Always IgA, take home message, ask your laboratory, can you do IgA? If not, forget it, in chronic, not in acute. If you work in a hospital, do your IgM. In chronic, don't do IgM, doesn't make any sense. Mycoplasma Elispot. Elispot is really helpful, additional tool. Don't forget the Elispot if it's available. So, next slide. Um, Epstein-Barr virus. This is so important to look at early antigens. If you have a laboratory doing the early antigens for reactivated or chronic infections, a lot of these patients have this sore throat. A lot of patients have this uh, ME, have uh, arthritis. It's a very, uh, very common symptom. And um, they have a fatigue. They all have fatigue with it. And uh, it's immune controlled um, in the lymphatic system. And it destroys the mitochondria. So we have a direct connection to the functional medicine, mitochondropathies, environmental medicine uh, with the toxins. And in your field, you use the LDN again very successfully, maybe without knowing that EBV is active. So you can come forward if maybe you check it, and if it's active, you treat the EBV infection, and then you have really a good tool to uh, defeat the pathogen and to destroy it. That has to be, and to increase our immune system. All infections are immune-triggered. You can ask all of your patients. You can ask, do you have more stress? Do you have more symptoms? It's like influenza. You, you don't feel very well during influenza time, and influenza depends on the immune system. Older people, stressing factors, have a lot of stress. And then you get all of these reactivations, all of this stuff. Maybe it's Borrelia, maybe it's Chlamydia. Maybe This is a job normally uh, to find out by therapists. Cytomegalovirus, um, this is a virus, interestingly, very high associated um, with multi-chemical sensitivity. If you have a patient with multi-chemical sensitivities, please check the patient for cytomegalovirus, and you will find it. 
I would say in 80% in Spain. But I had discussion with Martin Paul about this and Professor Ray, the fathers of this uh, functional medicine group. Please do that and you will find it. The more you look, the more you find this always in medicine in laboratory. The herpes simplex. Herpes simplex virus, herpes of the lips, don't underestimate this. We have a high association now also with the Parkinsonism. And um, I have also the couples. They reinfect each other by sharing classes. The herpes simplex of the lips. And one partner is immune competent. The other partner is not immune competent. And if you treat just one with LDN, for example, uh, and not the other one with LDN or other therapies, then they can reinfect each other. Nobody's caring for that. And we have silent carriers. We have so many patients. Um, the husband is fine and the wife is sick because the wife has a weak immune system. Maybe it's uh, epigenetics, genetics, we don't know actually. But uh, this is fact. This is truly fact what we see each day in our clinics. Every day, every day. I have contact with hundreds of therapists worldwide and they all confirm this, you know. And you can check this patient easily by IgA and you can do the new LA spot now. Very easy to check. Varicella zoster virus. You heard about the study with 24,000 patients now coming up. 24,000 varicella zoster. You think herpes zoster, or oh, I have a little pain and that's it. No, it's chicken pox. But if you have herpes zoster virus, 49% of the patients, they all got apoplectic strokes and 59% got the heart attacks. So you see why? Arteritis. Arteritis, big monthly center study. So we check more and more for chickenpox and herpes zoster. You, you need not to have uh, herpes zoster, um, this segmental pain, but it's in the deep. It's in the deep. The patients have IgA. I don't know why. They represent IgA, active virus, virus replication, and the ILISPOT is positive. The ILISPOT is very high positive in viruses, and bacterial infection, it's a, a lower results we find. This is my favorite now. I am coming to the end. Coxsackie virus. This is, I'm really shocked. How many patients in the world suffering from active Coxsackie virus infections? In the families. Why? We check it by IgA. And what is it doing? You think, oh, it's an enterovirus. It makes some diarrhea. It doesn't matter. Hmm. I, I would not agree with that. I don't know why so many. Uh, they all come with the question, do I have Lyme disease, I mean, or not? And I say, no, you don't have Lyme disease. You have an enterovirus infection. That's your problem. And it makes a lot of these problems. Um, it makes, for example, um, the insulin-dependent diabetes type 1. So if you diagnose very early, if you destroy at the beginning, when you are on the way with the pancreatitis by this virus, then you can maybe prevent this patient getting diabetes mellitus type 1. There's a chance for the patient. We have studies about that. The next is I see a lot of patients with a transversa myelitis. This is MS. MS patients, they use the cell phones here on the ear, which is also not so good with electromagnetic fields. They have a lot of neurological symptoms with this enterovirus, and they have some have herb angina. Nobody's looking at that. Nobody, no doctors looking into the mouth, no doctors inspecting it. Why? You have some blisters sometimes here. But that active Coxsackie virus infection, and if you treat them, you improve them. You can improve them, surely. 
and a lot of arthritis, chronic fatigue is associated. You see it here, diarrhea, cough, fatigue, conjunctivitis, headache, night sweats. These are all the symptoms, and it's coming and going. And heart rhythm, the Bornholm disease. The doctors don't know what is the Bornholm disease. If you say Bornholm disease, yeah, Bornholm disease, Coxsackie B1. Do you have heart rhythm disturbances from time to time? And but nobody's checking it. It's a virus infection. And then they get uh, some um, arrhythmic therapies, <laughs> which you can do. It's a symptomatic therapy, but the virus is still active. And it can make also myocarditis, and you can die by that. That's, so it's not so funny about this device. Check it with the IgA. Cheap testings, 40 euro. Then you know B1 subtype, A7 or A16 you can check. It's very easy to check this. So all of these symptoms um, are overlapping. We don't have a specific symptom for it. We cannot say now we have an ME. What is it? It can be some of these. You have to find out yourself. That's the job of the doctors. Differential, differential diagnosis, infectious diseases specialist. You will find a lot of these symptoms overlapping. But in the complexity of the symptoms, um, the infection gets a very high probability that you suffer from this infection. And this is the end of my story today. Thank you so much for your attention. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I am Dr. Darren Ingalls. I am a naturopathic physician in Connecticut and California in the United States. And today I'm going to be talking to you about the use of low-dose naltrexone in the treatment of Lyme disease. So just to give you some basic background information about Lyme disease, Lyme disease itself is a bacterial infection, and it's caused by an organism called Borrelia burgdorferi, at least here in the United States. Around the world, there are actually many, many species of this organism that can cause Lyme disease. So the species that we see here in the United States are a little bit different than those that are found in Europe, which are different than those found in Asia and so forth. So. You know, be aware that it's not just one organism that's causing this illness, but rather a series of multiple species that are responsible for causing you know, very similar symptoms. And this organism is transmitted through mostly a tick bite. However, there has been some recent research to suggest that ticks are not the only carriers of Lyme disease anymore. We can find this with mosquitoes, fleas, and potentially any other biting insect that shares blood since it is a blood-borne pathogen. So, you know, you'll hear about potentially people who get exposure to Lyme disease that live in areas of the world where it's not really known to having a lot of Lyme disease only because they don't necessarily have a lot of ticks. And I think that explains why we're seeing this really epidemic of Lyme around the world is that it's in areas that aren't necessarily tick-infested areas but potentially have mosquitoes and other biting insects. So uh, that, that seems to explain why we have, you know, this, this really now worldwide epidemic. And, you know, we have uh, at least 300,000 new cases of Lyme disease in the United States alone, really affecting millions of people worldwide. I think in uh, Europe, I read, there's about 68,000 new cases each year. So uh, it is something that uh, has become a problem uh, really throughout the world. And the symptoms of Lyme disease vary quite a bit. Classic Lyme disease is characterized by what they call a bullseye rash. So this is a rash that when you look at it, it kind of looks like a target where you'll see this series of concentric rings alternating with kind of red and white. 
excuse me. And uh, headaches are very common, high fever, joint pain, muscle aches, numbness and tingling in the arms and hands and feet, uh, sometimes Bell's palsy, which is paralysis on one side of the face, brain fog, memory problems, mood changes, and really dozens more. Up to 150 different symptoms have been associated with causing Lyme disease. Uh, and that's part of what can make it difficult for your physician to diagnose it. We call Lyme disease the great imitator. And we call it that because it really looks like a lot of other diseases and illnesses. So I gave you a short list of some of the things that are probably uh, the most commonly misdiagnosed conditions. Multiple sclerosis uh, is very commonly misdiagnosed. And multiple sclerosis is really a definition. If you talk to a neurologist about, okay, well, you know, I've got MS, but what causes it? You know, they're really going to shrug their shoulders. But uh, there's good research to suggest that Lyme disease can be a trigger, perhaps not the only trigger, but at least a trigger for MS. Other conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, Again, these are very generic diagnoses that don't necessarily have a definitive cause. However, Lyme disease can be a cause for them. Uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinson's, mono, Alzheimer's, and again, many, many others. There are probably at least 100 different conditions that have been associated with Lyme disease. So. If you've ever been diagnosed with something that doesn't have a clear definition and nobody really knows what's causing it, it always makes me very suspicious that Lyme might be part of the problem. And uh, one of the other symptoms that's very classically related to Lyme, and as far as we know, really only Lyme, is you can get what's called wandering pain. And what that means is that you can get pain in your right hip one day, and the next day it's in your left foot, and the next day it's in your right shoulder, and it seems to wander throughout your body. As far as we know, there's no other condition or organism that causes that specific symptom. So for people who experience this wandering pain, that's a pretty big red flag that Lyme might be part of the clinical picture. So Lyme is commonly misdiagnosed as some other condition or in many cases not diagnosed at all. And part of the reason that that happens is the testing that's available right now is really inadequate. And what that means is that we don't have a good test available that directly measures whether the organism is present and active in your body. Most of the tests that are available are antibody tests. So what they're looking at is the immune response to the exposure. So theoretically, if you got bit by a tick that carried Lyme disease and you had antibodies in your blood, that would just tell us that you've been exposed. But if your immune system did what we wanted it to do, it would make antibodies, your immune system would eradicate the infection before it ever became a problem, and that would be the end of that. But when you do a test looking for antibodies, because the antibodies are there, uh, someone might say, oh, well, you have antibodies, therefore you have Lyme disease. And that's not necessarily true either. So we have to take a look at what we see on paper versus what we see sitting in front of us. And when we have evidence on paper that there's been exposure and you have the clinical symptoms of Lyme disease, that's how we determine that Lyme is part of what's going on for you. You know, Lyme disease is a 
clinical diagnosis. What that means, it's really based on your symptoms. So even according to the Center for Disease Control here in the United States, the test is never designed to be a diagnostic. It was really designed to help uh, for surveillance, to monitor people who had known Lyme disease. Uh, it's really, though, based on the type of symptoms you have and if you live in an area that happens to be endemic for Lyme disease. So the testing, again, is really just a way that we can help determine if you've had exposure. But at the end of the day, our diagnosis is really based on the kind of symptoms that you had. There are new emerging tests coming out that are hopefully going to be better indicators about what's active in your body, uh, but they're still, I think, in their early stages, and the reliability of these tests has not really yet been determined. So. Uh, you know, people who have these often vague symptoms can go many, many years without ever getting diagnosed. And part of the problem we see in the United States is that people live in an area outside of the Northeast or the, the Central Midwest where Lyme is endemic. It's really out of doctors' minds, so they don't ever bother to even test people for it. And even if they do, um, and the test comes back negative, they said, oh, well, your test is negative, so you don't have Lyme. But again, I think this is a gross misinterpretation of what this test means. And false negative tests are actually quite common in the Lyme world. So it, it's not uncommon sometimes that we test people multiple times over a series of months to try and pick up on whether there is any indication that they've had that exposure. But uh, keep in mind that a negative test, one negative test, does not necessarily exclude the possibility of having had Lyme. So the initial problem with Lyme is the infection itself, and that's where you get those acute symptoms of headache and fever and joint pain and numbness and tingling. But as time passes, and particularly if that organism was never treated right away, it has the possibility of turning into something different. And what that something different is, is really an autoimmune problem. So Lyme is not the only organism that can do this. We know from the research that many microbes have the capacity to trigger an autoimmune problem. And that autoimmunity may not necessarily be lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it can sometimes be something even more generic and vague than that. So when you do uh, blood tests that we are typically run for, for autoimmune disease, many of these tests often come back negative. But the nature of what Lyme is doing to the immune system is still triggering a reaction that your immune system's confused and instead of fighting the organism, it's interacting with your own connective tissue. So many of these symptoms that we see with long-term uh, Lyme uh, is related to, to this autoimmune process. So this is where conventional medicine often fails is that they don't recognize that, you know, uh, Lyme is triggering this autoimmune process. So the conventional treatment is typically 21 days of doxycycline. This is an antibiotic that's known to kill Lyme. And at the end of that 21 days, whether you feel different or not, you're just done with treatment. And in many ways, that doesn't make a lot of sense logically. Uh, Lyme happens to be a very slow-growing organism, and the way that doxycycline works is it doesn't actually kill the organism directly. What it does is it stops the organism from replicating, and that's a little bit of a different process. So what that means is that the, the antibiotic really only works when the organism is in a replication cycle. And unlike regular bacteria like that cause a sinus infection that replicate every 20 minutes, 
antibiotics can be very effective because these organisms are constantly trying to reproduce. But Lyme disease can replicate as long as every 16 days, which is far longer than every 20 minutes. So that, that length of time in its process uh, certainly changes the way that these antibiotics affect the ability to eradicate the infection. So beyond just the, the 21 days of doxycycline, you know, that's where conventional medicine sort of stops with their, their treatment protocol. And often that lack of recognition that it's causing this autoimmune problem. So for people who end up with what we call chronic Lyme disease or what's really now been coined post-Lyme syndrome, there really isn't any, any conventional treatment offerings. Uh, antibiotics have not been shown to be very helpful when people get to this stage of illness. And I think this is where LDN becomes extremely effective because what we're really trying to do now is modulate the way that the immune system is behaving. If you think about autoimmunity as a whole, it really is an overreaction to uh, these various stimuli out there in the world. So ultimately what we want to do is we want to change the way that the immune system reacts to these different things. And that really includes a very comprehensive program of not just, uh, just the LDN itself, but we want to look at someone's diet. Are they eating anything that might be undermining their immune system? We want to look at intestinal health. You know, 80% of your immune function comes from the gut. So if the gut isn't functioning well, the immune system doesn't function well. So looking at, you know, are people having regular bowel movements? Do they get constipation? Do they get diarrhea? Do they get gas? Do they get bloating? All of these factors actually become very important in controlling the immune system. And of course, good sleep, good deep sleep. This is the time where the body has a chance to repair and restore itself. So we want to make sure that people are getting good quality sleep. Exercise is important, getting the body moving, getting blood moving. This is what helps oxygenate the tissue, remove waste products. Uh, all that's very important for feeling well and helping the immune system. Detoxification, if people have a poor time of clearing toxins from their body, that can have a detrimental effect on the immune system. And environmental control, so all these other things in their world that undermine the immune system, whether it's mold, pollen allergy, cat, dust, dog, any of these things can be a distraction to the immune system and affect the way that the immune system responds to a pathogen like Lyme disease. So we really have to look at this whole uh, picture of every person in being able to help move forward and get past Lyme. But again, I think LDN can become a very important factor in this because it does help alter the way the immune system responds. And we'll talk a little bit in just a minute about Th1 and Th2 responses, which is the, the way that we're trying to manipulate how the immune system is responding. You're probably already very well aware of how low-dose naltrexone works. You know, it's an opioid antagonist, but at low doses, it actually enhances your own internal opioid production, and that produces a lot of good beneficial effects for the body. That short-term blocking of the opioid receptors for four to six hours actually leads to an increased level of endogenous opioids, so that's what your body is naturally making on its own for up to 20 hours. So we're really getting this sustained long-term effect of, this, of these opioids, these natural opioids, by just using you know, these very low doses of that opioid uh, antagonist. 
uh, it, it's been used off-label for numerous conditions, including cancer and fibromyalgia and MS, Crohn's disease, different types of pain syndromes, and, and even autism. But again, if you look at that list, you'll see some of those conditions on there do overlap with Lyme. So I've given you some uh, research studies here that you're welcome to peruse at your convenience, but I just wanted to point out that, you know, this is something that has been studied. And I think when we look at the lot of the conditions that has been studied for, uh, such as there's a study here on chronic pain, they've done research on MS, they've actually done a few studies on MS, uh, they've even done studies here on fibromyalgia. We even find that LDN has been used in immune modulation, and I think this particular study is one of the more interesting studies because this suggests that there is a much broader application to using LDN outside of these individual conditions because immune modulation becomes important for various other types of immune dysfunction. We see that you know using low-dose naltrexone can help improve quality of life, and again, there's some research studies here on using it for Crohn's disease. LDN has not been specifically used in Lyme disease, but I, along with many other practitioners, have used this with Lyme disease and have had very good clinical success. And again, I think the way that it's working is that we're helping modulate this Th1, Th2 balance. So you're probably not a professional immunologist, but to understand what the mechanism is, Th1 stands for T helper cell one, and T helper cells are really the conductors of the immune system. So Th1 cells are really the cells that are most responsible for being direct scavengers in the body. So when you get exposed to a virus or a bacteria, these are the cells that are gonna go right after it and try and get rid of it right away. The T helper, tells, T -helper cell uh, two cells are, are really more responsible for antibody production. So they themselves don't directly do anything. They need a signal from other parts of the immune system to be activated. And so as antibody production increases, this is the part that can help affect microbes on the back end of an infection. But this antibody production is also what's involved in allergy and autoimmunity. And we like to think of it kind of like a seesaw. As Th1 goes up, Th2 goes down, and as Th2 goes up, Th1 goes down. It's actually far more complex than that, but just to kind of understand what's happening, that's a very simplistic way of think of it. So ultimately, what we really want for most people is to have this balance where you're probably in a slightly higher Th1 state than Th2, but what happens for a lot of people with various autoimmune conditions, including Lyme, is the Th2 system is very stimulated and the Th1 tends to be much lower. So, you know, LDN has an excellent safety profile. It's very well tolerated. Outside of uh, some changes in sleep patterns or sometimes people report that they have really odd dreams for a while, uh, LDN tends to be very, very well tolerated and is therefore very well indicated for people with Lyme disease. So let me present a couple of cases of Lyme disease that I've worked with to kind of illustrate how LDN can be used. Uh, the first case I have here is a 47-year-old female who had a two-year history of joint pain, fatigue, abdominal pain, insomnia, and brain fog. And she had been to see another functional medicine doctor here in the United States, 
And when several tests were run, she was found that her inflammatory markers were quite elevated, but all of her other blood tests for autoimmunity, including those for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, all of those tests were really negative. She also had some uh, stool testing done and other blood tests done, and what the stool test found is that she had a lot of yeast overgrowing in her gut, so she was treated with antifungals, which really helped her gastrointestinal symptoms and even helped her brain fog a little bit. She also had additional diet changes, which further helped reduce her joint pain and improved her gastrointestinal symptoms. But after about six months, she felt like she was hitting a wall and her progress really plateaued. During this time, there was really no change in her sleep pattern. She still complained of insomnia. She finally, uh, her doctor decided that uh, there was something else going on, so she had follow-up testing for Lyme disease, and she did have both IgG and IgM antibodies to Lyme, which even by the most conservative uh, assessments, this is a positive test to Lyme disease. This particular doctor uh, does not specialize in Lyme disease and therefore was referred to me for evaluation and treatment. So when I met with her, I immediately started her on an herbal protocol to treat active Lyme, and I used another therapy called low-dose immunotherapy to help uh, alter the way her immune system was responding to Lyme disease. And over the next six weeks, her fatigue and her brain fog started to improve. She also noticed that her joint pain was getting a little better, but her sleep was still not good. And what that meant for her is she had difficulty falling asleep, would wake up multiple times in the night and had difficulty falling back asleep. So I decided to start her on LDN one milligram at bedtime. And for me, this is actually very standard. I like to start with low doses and work my way up to find, you know, I wanna find the minimum dose that's gonna give the most benefit. So after two weeks, uh, there was really no improvement in her sleep pattern or any of her other symptoms. So I increased her dose up to two milligrams. After she was on the two milligrams uh, for a few weeks, she reported her sleep was a little bit better, her joint pain was a little better, but she did tell me that she felt like she was sleeping deeper and longer than she was before. So after two more weeks, I increased her LDN again up to three milligrams, and three milligrams seemed to be the, the magic number for her. At that point, she started falling asleep easier, she was consistently sleeping through the night, and on top of that, we started seeing other systemic symptoms improve, such as her digestion was better, her bowel movements were more, more regular, and even her energy was better. And she continued to improve overall after three months. Uh, she still was getting a little bit of joint pain in her shoulders and her hands. She wasn't having the systemic joint pain anymore. It really was now confined to just a couple of places. So I felt like, you know, the LDN had made really a big difference for her, and we decided to just bump it up a little bit. So we increased her dose again from three milligrams up to three and a half milligrams. One month later, after being on the three and a half milligrams, she was really sleeping well. Her hands and her shoulders weren't hurting anymore. Her grip strength was better. She was able to do all of her activities really without any kind of physical limitation. Her digestion continued to do well. She wasn't having brain fog. She didn't have any abdominal pain. In fact, she actually went on a ski trip for her husband for two weeks, 
and she was skiing six, eight hours a day and really didn't have any joint or muscle complaints afterwards. So we've continued on the three and a half milligrams at bedtime, and during that time, she's been doing so well, we've actually been able to reduce other things that she was taking, so several nutritional supplements and herbs. And uh, we did keep her on just a couple of maintenance herbs for keeping the inflammation under control, just because really she's a very active person with you know physical sports and gardening, and uh, we just wanted to make sure that she didn't have any kind of, uh, of secondary uh, joint or muscle problems. Uh, but we will probably start to discontinue those over the next couple of months if she continues to do well. So the second case I want to present to you, this is a 40-year-old male, and in June of 2002, he started to experience migraine headaches, pain in his spine. He had a very high fever of 104 Fahrenheit, 40 degrees Celsius, and numbness and tingling in his arms and legs. He was actually on his way to the hospital, and a friend noticed that he had a big bullseye rash on the back of his leg. So he didn't know that he had the rash. Uh, someone else pointed out. So the rash is a dead giveaway to this Lyme. He happens to live in an endemic area of the northeast United States that, that has a lot of Lyme disease. So this is a, a very classic case of Lyme disease. So he was started on 21 days of doxycycline, and really after four days, his symptoms were completely better. Uh, but eight months later, he started to experience numbness and tingling in his arms and legs and started to have the spine pain again. He started on doxycycline again, but had no improvement after one month of treatment. And over the course of the next eight to nine months, he had actually changed different antibiotics, different combination of antibiotics. And not only were things not getting better, they were actually getting worse. And the antibiotics were starting to take a toll on his gut. He started having a lot of gastrointestinal problems, specifically loose stool, abdominal pain, anorexia. So he was having a hard time, you know, just eating felt nauseous all the time. Uh, I think as he described to me, he felt like a chemo patient. Uh, just the gut was completely wiped out. Uh, he happened to have met a, another doctor uh, in New York City named Dr. Zhang, a Chinese medical doctor who's developed a Chinese herbal protocol on treating Lyme. So he started on that regimen and fairly quickly, uh, joint pain and the neuropathy started to gradually improve. After almost a year, his progress started to stall, so he stopped taking the Chinese herbs and he transitioned over to a different herbal protocol. There's another very popular herbal protocol called the Cowden Protocol that's used with Lyme disease, and therefore he switched over to that. He did notice improvement again, and the joint pain really cleared up. However, the neuropathy was still persistent, and for him it was really numbness in his left arm and both his legs. Um, he decided to meet with his neurologist who did an MRI, which did show there was some demyelination in the brain, which is consistent with multiple sclerosis. And as I mentioned earlier, MS and Lyme disease are commonly misdiagnosed or confused together. And on an MRI, the lesions that are observed with MS are identical to the lesions you would observe with Lyme. So we are quite sure that the lesions that are seen with him are really related to Lyme. Uh, MS is the, the official diagnosis, but we're, we're quite sure it's Lyme-related. So I started him on LDN one milligram at bedtime for two weeks. 
So after one milligram, there was really no change in symptoms. So I increased his dose up to two milligrams. Again, after another two weeks, there was no change. So I did a bigger jump and increased it to four milligrams. After he'd been on four milligrams, he did have slight improvement in the neuropathy, but it was still there. So uh, he's a big guy. He weighs 230 pounds. So um, I'm not sure what that is in kilograms, but uh, we went ahead and increased him up to six milligrams. After he had been on six milligrams, uh, he complained that he was having some difficulty sleeping for a couple of weeks. Uh, but after that couple of weeks, his sleep pattern basically started to normalize again, and we just kept him at that dose. He can, uh, he's continued with the six milligrams at bedtime, and his neuropathy continues to improve. Uh, he's able to walk without tripping as much. It feels like his balance is better. So before starting the LDN, he was tripping all the time, had fallen multiple times, tripped over furniture, felt very clumsy, and uh, it was really just becoming a, a problem in his life. So having uh, been on the six milligrams for a bit, he noticed that uh, all of that had, had markedly improved. And he was sleeping much better, and his wife even noticed that he wasn't snoring as he was before. Uh, he still has neuropathy today, but it continues to get better. He's been on the six milligrams of LDN for about four months, and we're going to continue to monitor his progress. But the trend is such that, you know, things keep getting better. And with LDN in some patients, uh, you know, three months tends to be kind of the, the magic number, which, you know, you really want to give it the full uh, dose to see how people respond. But I have seen people where sometimes they do need a bit longer before we see the full extent of what it's going to do for them. So our plan is really to give it six months, uh, see how he's progressing, and hopefully we'll see the neuropathy continue to improve. So this slide just represents my dosing regimen uh, of how I do it. Again, I like to start with one milligram at bedtime, and I'll increase by one milligram every two weeks up to six milligrams. I do not have patients that I've used more than six milligrams, and I find, uh, as I've listed here, that women seem to do best at three milligrams. Men often do best at four and a half milligrams, and uh, children often do best between one and two milligrams. And these certainly aren't hard and fast rules, but um, this is what I tend to find operates best for, for people in this, you know, either gender or age group. I've actually used uh, LDN quite a bit in children with autism. That's a fairly large part of my practice as well. And uh, again, I think with autism, there is that element of immune dysfunction and autoimmunity that LDN tends to do very, very well by. So just to wrap it up, uh, I just wanted to give you some information here. I do have a, an upcoming book called The Lyme Solution that will be released in uh, April of 2018. And I do talk about low-dose naltraxone as a treatment for Lyme disease as well as many other ways of managing in Lyme, including dietary changes, herbal protocols, and lifestyle things that people can do. So this is designed really to be a self-help guide for people with Lyme disease so that they can help overcome their Lyme disease on their own. And then I do have a chapter that talks specifically about how to work with healthcare providers to do other types of therapies that can be beneficial. 
So all of my information is here. If you'd like to follow me, uh, we send out regular updates on information about Lyme disease and other things in the naturopathic world. So I, uh, I appreciate your time uh, listening in on this uh, webinar today, and I, I hope you find the information very useful, and I wish you good success in your health. Thank you. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.